And if you have your Bibles, uh, open them up to the book of First Timothy. First uh, Timothy, we're going to be looking this morning uh, at the first two verses of First Timothy chapter one. We're beginning a new series where we're just going to uh, work verse by verse through this book. And so, again, if you're uh, not in a small group, uh, this is a good time to onboard uh, into uh, one of the small groups that are available um, to you. And so. I would encourage you to do that. And this morning, what I specifically want to look at, and the question that I want to ask is, what's in a greeting? What's in a greeting? We we all, uh, and I don't know if you do this, but a lot of times uh, I've been guilty of uh, when I'm introducing myself to someone or they're introducing themselves to me, you're kind of going through this sort of greeting routine. And a lot of times that greeting routine uh, is nothing more than a formality. And a lot of times uh, we may not even be paying attention because we're focusing on the next thing that we're going to say to the person when that person stops introducing themselves to us, right? We kind of tend to view greetings as more as uh, just some um, shallow pleasantries that we just need to get through. Uh, move on to more substantial stuff, or we're just going to say the pleasantries and then we're going to get out of uh, the conversation uh, as quick as possible. Uh, But that's not the case when we see greetings, uh, biblical greetings. And uh, and I think that oftentimes because of uh, how we view greetings or how we greet one another, how we write letters, how we send emails, all of those sorts of things, uh, we perhaps don't pay attention uh, to the significance of um, a greeting and a letter uh, that, uh, like the, the letter that we're going to be working through over the next several months. And so uh, this morning, that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to examine uh, the introductory remarks uh, t- t- from Paul uh, to Timothy, who's the pastor of Ephesus. And so I'm going to read these two verses, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to work um, through this with the time that we have together. So the Apostle Paul writing this letter to young Timothy, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes this greeting here. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. Verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for this time that we have together. We thank you for your word, God. We thank you that your spirit inspired it, God, and that uh, the same spirit that inspired this word is the same spirit that has preserved this word for many, many, many years, God, so that we can sit here and have confidence in it your gathered church. And so we ask for your help as we work through it this morning, God. Grant us humility, God, so that we can be conformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes, the the first thing that I would encourage you to jot down is this. Listen to the apostles. Listen to the apostles. It was expected that that the early church listened to the apostles, and and because of what I just prayed a moment ago, because God's Word has been kept pure in all ages by the Holy Spirit, it's expected that we listen to the words of the apostles as well. 
One of the catechism questions that we teach um, our children in the back each, uh, each Lord, we don't do this particular catechism each Lord's Day, but we teach it, is when we ask them who wrote the Bible, uh, their answer is um, holy men. It's, it, it, it's holy men. It's prophets. It's apostles who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so your children are learning to articulate that. And, and we don't want, as adults, uh, the significance of the title of apostle, the office of apostle, the office of prophet, if you will, to be lost on us. Paul opens the letter by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Right? Paul, the apostle Paul, he wrote this letter. Right? He, in fact, was an apostle. And that word apostle, it means uh, sent out as an authorized agent on mission. Right? Sent out as an authorized agent on mission. And Christ gave that title to the original 12 disciples. We see that in Luke chapter 6, verse 13. And he grafted Matthias, Acts chapter 1, and Paul as well as Barnabas, Acts chapter 14. And he grafted them into that calling. Now, Timothy, who's the initial recipient of this letter... Right? He, he knew Paul. If you know anything about the relationship, and we're going to look a little bit at their relationship more uh, this morning, but he knew Paul intimately. Right? So the question that we should ask when we, when we look at this greeting, one of the questions that we should ask is, is why then would Paul, if, if Timothy knew Paul intimately, why then would Paul include such a formal introduction to this letter? Right? He, he and Timothy, they, they've penned letters together. They've written other letters together. Timothy knows Paul. He was discipled by Paul. So why would Paul include such a formal introduction into this letter? It's because this letter was intended to, to be read by Timothy, probably, to the gathered church of Ephesus. Right? And so while it was, it's written to Timothy, it's the intention is for Timothy, who is the pastor that was commissioned by the Apostle Paul. The intention is for Timothy to read this letter uh, to the church of Ephesus when they're gathered. This is a letter to a pastor and his congregation, right? To, his pa- to a pastor and his congregation. And, and the reason that this is important is because the Apostle Paul didn't commission the, the church of, of Ephesus. He didn't train the elders of that church, as we see the way that the physician Luke documents it in the book of Acts. He didn't appoint Timothy as a pastor and write to them, instructing them on how a church should function on his own authority. Right? Paul didn't do that on his own authority. Paul did these things in the authority of Jesus. Right? Paul did this stuff in the authority of Jesus. Paul had particular qualifications as an apostle that enabled him by God's Spirit to charge God's church according to the will of God, according to the revealed will of God. But, but why is being an apostle authoritative? Right? Why does Paul giving this title to the church of Ephesus, why does it matter? Flip over quickly with me to Acts chapter 1. And I think we'll have this on the screen as well. Acts chapter 1, I'm going to look at verses 21 and 25 here. Again, Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is kind of documenting the, the movement of the, the first century church, and that's what we see in the book of Acts here. 
But Luke, start with verse 21, he documents this. Says, so one of the men who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection, right? One of these men. And they put forward, and this is where the context will become a, a little bit clearer to us. They put forward two, Joseph called um, Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, you, Lord, who you know the hearts of all, show Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place, right? And so we have uh, uh, a vacancy, right? We, we know the story of Judas. We know how he betrayed Christ and the, the events, the necessary events of him betraying Christ so that Christ could be, um, become sin that knew no sin so that we ultimately may find forgiveness. But Judas betrayed Christ, he betrayed the twelve, um, and, uh, and he tried to make restitution through works, by, uh, through suicide, and now uh, there is a vacancy uh, to the original twelve disciples, which Christ and Luke calls the apostles. They need to fill that slot. They need, as they say in the text, to add another witness to the resurrection, Right? And, and really, what we have here is, is the only place in Scripture that gives us a glimpse into the, the qualifications or the process, if you will, of, of becoming an apostle, at least an apostle in, in any New Testament sense of the word. And in Acts 1, we see the apostles, again, after the betrayal and suicide of Judas and after the ascension of Christ, they're looking for a man to replace Judas. And in just this short passage in Acts 1, we can see a criteria for an apostle beginning to form. They were looking for a man who was, A, a witness to the resurrection, and they were looking for a man that was going to be appointed by the Lord, which is demonstrated in them going to the Lord and, and praying to him regarding two particular man, uh, men eventually. Uh, if you know how um, the story goes, they uh, cast lots, which is not gambling. They... Um, Something different there. But, but we see a, a witness to the resurrection was required, and we see that they needed to be appointed by the Lord. And, 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 and even this, the scarcity and the sacredness of that title, apostle, is seen even in Paul, uh, Paul calling himself the, the least of the apostles in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. He says, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Right? Not, not only did the Apostle Paul uh, count himself the least of the apostles to how it related to him treating uh, the body of Christ, but unlike the rest of the apostles, Paul wasn't with Christ from the point of uh, the baptism of John, as Acts chapter 1 says. He was appointed to be an apostle by the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, right? Acts chapter 9. And as many of us know, he may have been late to the game as it relates to promoting the lordship of Christ, but we know the Apostle Paul to be uh, steadfast and courageous and perhaps even the most well-known of all the apostles uh, in the New Testament. Um, 
And as I was reading through Paul's other greetings to the church, that was one of the things I've been doing over the last couple of of weeks. Galatians 1, verse 1, it also struck me as it relates to the qualifications of an apostle. In verse 1 of Galatians, Paul says, it says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, this isn't just some title someone can flippantly say, I'm going to be one of those. Right? Not from man, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. How do we know it's through Jesus Christ and God the Father? Because Christ, who was raised from the dead by the Father, appointed him. Right? And, and, and here I think we see just a, what's implied here is some of those Acts chapter um, one qualifications. We see here Paul says that he's an apostle through Jesus and through the Father to testify about the resurrection of Christ. Now, if the apostles in the New Testament were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus and they were appointed by Jesus, what was the outworking of their ministry like? What did they do? Flip over with me quickly to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. Actually, verse 19 and 20 is what we'll look at. This is another one of the Apostle Paul's letters. Paul says, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And this, again, is Paul writing to the church of Ephesus, reminding them that of, of who they are in Christ Jesus, which is indicative of the Apostle Paul's letters. And in verse 20, we see two things. We see foundation built by the apostles and prophets, and we see Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. Right? Two words here, foundation and cornerstone. Foundation and cornerstone. What's the difference between the two? Right? Today, cornerstone is nothing more than just this symbolic structure, if you will. But in the first century, that wasn't the case. Listen to how one commentator puts it. The cornerstone was always the first stone laid during construction, and every other stone in the building was measured by the standard of the cornerstone to ensure a proper fit. In calling Jesus the cornerstone, Paul explains that those who want to form the stones in the household of God must be conformed to the image of Christ. In other words, we must be disciples who are daily becoming more like the Savior. All right, so, so the cornerstone is what we conform around. All right, the early church would have understood this immediately, but what are the foundation? How does that fit in, especially as it relates to the prophets and to the apostle? All right, the, foundation, the foundation flowed from the cornerstone. It flowed from the cornerstone, the cornerstone being the starting point, and it expanded the work of the cornerstone, if you will. The apostles and the prophets themselves weren't the foundation, but who they testified to, which was Christ, that was a foundational work. In the first century, we have the apostles, and this is critical because it impacts the way that we read our Bibles, but in the first century, we have the apostles who come in the authority of Jesus who God, through his Holy Spirit, is revealing things about Christ too. We have those apostles that are now interpreting the Old Testament for us. They're in- interpreting the prophets, and they're saying the prophets of the Old Testament 
we're testifying about Jesus, who's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, right? This long-awaited for Messiah had finally come, and he brought the kingdom with him. Right? This, is why that, this is why it's significant that the apostles were to be eyewitness to, eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And this is why they had authority in the church. This is why people paid attention to them. They were laying the foundation that was started by the cornerstone who's Christ, and they were telling people that Jesus is Emmanuel. Right? Jesus is the Word made flesh. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the strong man. He's the line of Judah. He's the son of David. He's the living bread. He's the good shepherd. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the living stone. He's the cornerstone. He's the firstborn of all creation, as we just sang about. He's creator. He's sustainer. He's savior. He's Almighty God, He's Lord, He's the Bridegroom, He's the Sabbath, He's Redeemer, He's the bright morning star, He's the Judge, He's the Giver of Rest, He's the Wisdom of God, He's the Prince of Peace, He's faithful and true, and on and on and on the list goes. Christ is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies and the apostles who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and who were appointed by Jesus himself interpret that for us and say, Jesus is the one that we look to. He's our Savior and he's sufficient. So we need to listen to the apostles. We need to listen to to the apostles. And so we look to Scripture and we read it and we study it and we're changed by it because of the Holy Spirit of God. We're changed by the words of God that were documented by men who were eyewitnesses to the bodily resurrection of Christ Jesus and appointed by Jesus to testify to us. That's the beauty of God's Word being living and active, right? This letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy that was to be read in the gathered church, it's relevant to us now, right? It's relevant to us now. And so we listen to the apostles. Secondly, as we ask the question, what's in a greeting? Christ is our Savior, or God is our Savior, and Jesus Christ is our hope. God is our Savior, and Jesus Christ is our hope, right? Paul uses that saying in the greeting, God our Savior, Jesus Christ our hope. Now that that phrase, God our Savior, it occurs only five times in the pastoral epistles, and this is the only place that it occurs in the Apostle Paul's epistle. That word Savior used of God's God here, it's, it's the relationship sustained by God alone to his redeemed ones. God is Savior. He's our Savior. And Jesus Christ is the hope of God being our Savior. Now, I'm not quite sure why Paul uses this particular expression, but I know just in my own life, I've defaulted into thinking, at least practically thinking, that Christ came to change the Father's mind regarding me. And I don't, I don't know if I'm the only one who's, who's defaulted into that thinking or not, but, 
But we often even see skeptics of the Christian faith pit what they read of God in the Old Testament with what they read of God in the New Testament. And I think that this has even had a bigger impact on our thinking than we realize at first pass. We forget so easily that God sought after Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned and he clothed them. He clothed them. But then we read a phrase, right, in our forgetfulness and in our struggles. We read a phrase like, God our Savior. And we just sit in that for a minute. Just sit in it for a minute. And from there, we we can begin to have our mind renewed and, and fixed on the reality that our triune God didn't save us reluctantly. As I thought about this passage, my mind kind of wandered to to John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, right? Many of you know this if you've been in church life for any length of time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I also think of Romans chapter 5, Verse 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In John, we see that it was the love of the Father that sent Christ as the Savior of the world, right? In Romans, we see that God demonstrates his love for us in that Christ died for sinners. If you're a sinner in this room, There's good news for you. God loves you and he sent Christ to die for you. And when we doubt that, we go there. And it's there that the the Holy Spirit comforts us. God is our Savior. Just continue to think about that for a moment. What, What do we know to be true in God's economy as Christians? We know that God made a covenant with himself, the covenant of redemption, in which he purposed before he even created us to redeem us to himself. The Father planned this, the Son accomplished this great salvation, and the Spirit applied salvation to us and is our seal, is our guarantor of our inheritance, of our salvation. Our God is Savior, our triune God is Savior, the Father, Son, and Spirit all say amen about our reconciliation. Now, this isn't some, again, obligatory greeting that Paul's giving to Timothy in the church of Ephesus here. He's, he's not trying to hit a word count or some sort of, of quota. This very greeting is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And right up front, we have Paul reminding Timothy in the church of Ephesus and in the church 2,000 plus years removed from Ephesus called Deer Park Fellowship that our God is a willing Savior and Christ Jesus is the one we rest in for this sure, fixed, eternal hope of salvation. The, the, the church of Ephesus existed because of this grand truth that God loves saving his people. We at Deer Park Fellowship exist because of that grand truth. Our God loves saving his people. It's in his nature to do so, and he does so to the uttermost. God is our Savior. Jesus Christ is our hope of that. So we look there. 
When we doubt, we look there. When we wrestle with our sins, we look there. We don't delay. We go there as quick as possible. And we're reminded of the willingness of our God to save us. Third, family and friendships should cultivate faith in our triune God. Family and friendships should cultivate faith in our triune God. Verse 2 here, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Timothy, my true child in the faith. This may be something that, again, it may seem insignificant. It may even seem out of place, something to just gloss over. But I want to point it out to us, and I want to expand it just a little bit with some of Paul's other writings to show you how... uh, how this came to be, how this statement came to be. I want to show you how, how Timothy um, is called by Paul his true child in the faith. Okay. Timothy was at least a, a third-generation Christian. He was at least a third-generation Christian. We, we see that much in 2 Timothy 1.5. The Apostle Paul, in his other letter to Timothy in the church of Ephesus, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Timothy's grandmother Lois passed the faith on to Timothy's mother Eunice, who passed it on to Timothy. And and although we don't see Timothy's father mentioned, he's nonetheless present. He's a Gentile according to Acts chapter 16.1, and I think the Apostle Paul here is is giving Timothy's Jewish lineage. But what's clear is that Timothy was raised to know and love the Lord, and and the apostle Paul came and he filled in the gaps as an apostle regarding Christ being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Being raised in the faith is God's expectation. Being raised in the faith is God's expectation. Right? Being raised to, to, to know and love God is the normative way of life. That's the normative way of life. It's, it's our sin that clouds that being normative. It's our sin that clouds that from being common. But it's how God created us to be. The, the chief end of every person ever created in the image of God, which is to say absolutely everything, everyone, is created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And the main way in which we promote this is through parents who see parenthood as an issue of stewardship. That is, we as parents and as grandparents glorify God and enjoy Him. As we go through life glorifying God and enjoy Him, we train our kids to do the same. This should, again, be the normal outworking of the Christian faith. This should be the normal way that a Christian home functions. When we don't function like this, we're rebelling against the way that God made us. I don't think we give that enough thought. Being who God made us to be means worshiping God, delighting in God, glorifying God, and enjoying Him forever. That's who God made us to be, right? In a culture that's obsessed with this is who I am, who we all are, are worshipers of the Lord. It's our sin. It's our uh, sin nature, our own personal transgressions that cloud this and make that feel abnormal. But it's not abnormal, What are the nuts and bolts of a family that glorifies and enjoys God? What are the nuts and bolts of that, just quickly? 
We inculcate our kids. We persistently and intentionally instruct them. That has an eternal impact on our children. Kids being raised in such a way that they see the public worship of God harmonizing with the rhythm of the home is the most important thing you can do with your life. I'll say that again because I don't think I'm overstating it. Kids being raised in such a way that they see the public worship of God harmonizing with the rhythm of the home is the most important thing you can do with your life. There's no compartmentalization. Nothing is off limits from the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we see the fruit of this, to bring it back here, we see the fruit of this with Timothy. By God's grace and by the faithfulness of his grandmother and parents, Timothy had the, the, the logic, he had the capacity to even reason and persuade people for the glory of God while rebuking false teachers. The very ministry of Timothy demonstrates this holistic worldview as it relates to his faith. Being raised in, in such a way that kids connect that Christ is Lord over culture, Christ is Lord over math, Christ is Lord over science, Christ is Lord over art, Christ is Lord over history, Christ is Lord over grammar, Christ is Lord over philosophy, Christ is Lord over logic, Christ is Lord over civics. That matters. It matters. Because what they're being influenced by is the very thing that's shaping their soul. So what are you allowing to shape the soul of your kid? Everything is discipleship. This is where the church has got it wrong for so long. Everything is discipleship. Everything. There's nothing that's neutral. There's nothing that's not, that's not discipleship. Education is discipleship. Entertainment Entertainment is discipleship. Social media is discipleship. What is shaping the soul of your kids? What are they being discipled in? Timothy was instructed in the Lord from a young age, from infancy. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. He was instructed in the Scriptures from infancy. There was a cohesiveness in Timothy's upbringing that made Paul's tutorship of him the the next logical step. It just made sense. So Paul, he steps into the picture. That's why he calls Timothy his true child of the faith. He steps into the picture of Timothy's education, and he shows him Christ. He shows him Christ, and he shows him what a dedication to the lordship of Christ looks like in the times that are favorable, and he shows him what the lordship of Christ looks like in times that aren't favorable. By the way, he was ministering at a church in which a dedication to the lordship of Jesus Christ was not favorable. Was not favorable. Paul shows him what faithful pastoral ministry looks like, and and this just... It's not instruction just in word. Words are vitally important, but it's not instruction just in word. The Apostle Paul models that for him. He models that for him. The consistency of Timothy's grandmother and parents blossomed by the power of the Holy Spirit. The friendship and mentorship of Paul for, for Timothy, it blossomed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? Faith was cultivated as it should be. Again, as it should be the normative way of life, faith was cultivated and God gave the increase. 
faith was cultivated and God gave the increase. And for Paul, he looked at Timothy as a spiritual son. Right? Many of us are, are parents and grandparents in this room today. And the most important thing you can do for your kids is not to be just a mom and a dad, but to be their spiritual mom and their spiritual dad. Disciple your children in the Lord and stop allowing them to be devoured by the culture. Stop. And many of you in this room are not parents. The Apostle Paul was never married. He was never married. Yet he had spiritual sons, one of which was Timothy. Right? Timothy co-authored 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon, which is the way that a southern Georgia says Philemon. It's Philemon, and it's gracious. Now, the spiritual fatherhood and sonship was significant. Right? Paul's relationship with Timothy was one in which Paul would later say, I have no one like him. It's Philippians 2.20. I have no one like him. Right? Spiritual fatherhood, being a spiritual mom, that matters. That matters. And though the Bible doesn't speak of how Timothy's life ended, Fox's Book of Martyrs, if you're familiar with that book, if not, I'd encourage you to check it out. But Fox's Book of Martyrs puts Timothy's death around the reign of Domitian, which is the year 97. And it's believed that he remained at Ephesus and he pastored there for the rest of his life until he was murdered for his public commitment to Jesus and Christ's church. Fox's Book of Martyrs puts it this way, quote, As the pagans were about to celebrate a feast called Catagonia, which was a, a first century kind of riot, if you will. It was a very violent um, disturbance. Timothy, meeting the procession, severely reproved them for their, and this is how Fox, uh, John Fox puts it, for their ridiculous idolatry, which so exasperated the people that they fell upon him with their clubs and beat him in so dreadful a manner that he expired of the bruises two days after. This is what a true child in the faith does in the midst of adversity. Now, this is what a true child in the faith does when he faces pressure to compromise. And this type of faith isn't produced overnight. Now, it's internalized over years of being trained and seeing parents know and fear the Lord. It's the fruit of intentional and holistic discipleship. Family and friendships should cultivate faith in our triune God, and, and as they do, should rest in the sovereign work of the Spirit. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but, but guys, we live in Babylon, and we'll probably die in Babylon. Right? We're raising kids in Babylon, and, and we need to raise them by God's grace to be sturdy. We need to raise sturdy kids. We need to raise them to fear God. We need to raise them to love God because they can't love neighbor if they don't love and fear God, right? The order of that matters. We live in a society that talks a lot about loving neighbor nowadays. The problem is they forget the prerequisite, which is to love God, right? The first four commandments, first table commands, we've gone through them in our confession of sin over the last several weeks. That matters, and we often forget that. Covenant to raise your kids in the Lord. Covenant to raise your kids in the Lord. Family, friends, cultivate faith in our triune God. And finally, we see God is the giver of grace 
mercy, and peace. God is the giver of grace, mercy, and peace. We see that in the last part of verse 2. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We see in this greeting a, a sort of prayer over Timothy. Right? We see a prayer over, over the church that he's pastoring in the final part of, of this greeting. And, and in it, we see these biblical words, grace, mercy, and peace. Right? Grace is, is Paul praying for divine favor on Timothy in his life, in his pastoral work. Right? Paul is asking that the Lord would bestow undeserved blessings out on Timothy, right? The grace, the giving of what we don't deserve. Right? We, see, we see him pray for mercy here, right? Mercy is the withholding of what we do deserve, right? We received mercy when the Father poured his wrath out on the Son instead of pouring his wrath out on us. That's mercy. But we see him pray for mercy, and this isn't, his prayer for mercy isn't included or is in in any other of the Apostle Paul's greetings. And it could have been because of Timothy's frail health, which we'll see uh, here a little bit about how weak he was in chapter 5. So the Apostle Paul could be praying for a physically weak pastor. It could also be a prayer because of the difficulty of pastoring Ephesus. Right? Timothy was constantly engaged in confrontation, both inside of Ephesus and outside of uh, the church of Ephesus. He didn't have this peaceful American dream sort of pastoral ministry. And then we see peace. Paul's prayer and his his greeting Timothy and the church of Ephesus in, in peace. One theologian says that peace is one of God's best gifts to men. In a world of war and hate, this term becomes even more significant. In Christ, we have peace of heart and mind. Are you capture that? No matter what our circumstances are, we don't have to rage because Christ is our peace. How does that practically look? Do we behave in such a way that Christ is our peace? Right in the midst of, of, of Timothy struggling with his health, in the midst of Timothy um, in constant, again, constant conflict as he pastored the church of Ephesus and he engaged with a, a pagan culture, he could have peace. Right? Paul is greeting him in peace and praying peace over him because we can have peace of mind, we can have peace of heart in Christ Jesus. It's true for Timothy, it's true for us. So if we want grace, if we want mercy, if we want peace, we look to our source, which is our triune God. Right? He's the only one that has the authority to grant them. Our our strivings and our efforts to obtain them apart from Him will always fail. He's the gift giver. These are His gifts. Therefore, we have to go to Him. So Paul praying this over Timothy and having this letter read to the congregation reminded this pastor and it reminded this church and it reminds us, again, 2,000 plus years removed from this, go to God. Go to God. He's your Savior. Jesus is your hope. And as these words of God go out, the Holy Spirit living in us testifies that these things are true. Some takeaways for us this morning, and then we'll close in prayer. These are in your worship guide, so don't feel like you have to jot them down. First this, we should listen, internalize, 
and be changed by the words of the apostles. They were inspired by the Spirit and they point us to Christ. Listen to the apostles. Secondly, our triune God loves, loves us and didn't save us reluctantly, nor does He sustain our salvation reluctantly. So the same God that doesn't save us reluctantly is the same God that uh, does not sustain us reluctantly. Third, raise kids that fear the Lord. Parents will give an account to God for the discipleship and education of their children. Christ is Lord over everything, and God expects us to help our kids see this in word and in action. Fourth, we should be committed to producing spiritual children. This means that we must pray for the Holy Spirit to regenerate the lost, publicly and privately walk in the light, and publicly and privately announce the Lordship of Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you for your your word, God. Thank you for this greeting. And God, I pray that as we reflect on it this week, God, I pray that your spirit would use it to change us. And so, God, we are grateful for you, and we love you. Thank you again for seeking and saving us in Jesus. Thank you for depositing your Holy Spirit in us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.